Hey, if you have your Bibles, I want you guys to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 14. We're going to conclude that, that chapter this morning. And so if you don't have a Bible, again, raise your hand really high, and then someone will be able to hand you out a copy of God's Word. And if you don't own a Bible, um, raise your hand and keep it raised high. And then the one that we're handing out, please keep that one. Um, it's our gift to you so that you can have a, your own copy of God's Word. Uh, Romans chapter 14. And so last week, we began to talk about the topic of Christian freedoms and and. Paul, the Apostle Paul basically said when it comes to these freedoms, and if you weren't here, freedoms were these lists of things that we can go on and on about that God himself is not explicit about in his text. I Meaning he doesn't say you should do this or you should not do them, and these are freedoms. And then some believers in Christ or followers of Jesus have the freedom to do things that others don't. And he said, now when to guard those freedoms, what we talked about in chapter 14, 1 through 12, is we are not to judge other people. In fact, we saw that we were not even the ultimate jobs of ourselves, that our conscience itself is stored and guided and shaped by the highest degree of authority, which we believe is the gospel of Jesus Christ through his word. And then lastly, Paul concluded with saying, at the end of the day, all of us are going to be ultimately judged by God, and we will stand before God. And so this week, in uh, verses 13 to the end of the chapter, Paul continues in that language of freedom by talking far more about what it looks like for us in light of community, what it looks like for us in light of the people who we do life with, this Christian community. And so one of the things, uh, three points that I have for us through the text this morning is one, is that in living a life of love, that we understand that we have presence over preference, that we choose people, as in, in essence, service over self, and then faith over sin. And so before we jump into God's word, you guys bow your heads and pray with me. God, we thank you this morning for an opportunity to open up your word and ask that your spirit would guide us. God, I pray that you'd remove me, that we would see Jesus, we would understand what it means, Lord, to live in proximity with one another and community with one another in light of these things called freedoms. That these things would not be used to divide, they would not be used as a stumbling block, but Father, we would use instead love to be able to serve one another, to be with one another, and out of faith, Lord, walk with Christ. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, many of you know of my obsession with, with uh, documentaries. I love watching documentaries. And uh, one, of, one of the ones I've watched a couple times is one by uh, Chris Heron. It's not by him. It's about a story of a guy named Chris Heron. And Chris Heron was a basketball player, uh, grew up in just kind of the streets of uh, Massachusetts, and, uh, and played basketball at UMass, got kicked out of that school, went to Fresno State, and then got in trouble there, but still went to the NBA. And the process was, the reason why he kept getting in trouble is he, just, he had addictions. With alcohol, substance abuse, and you just watch this 30 for 30 that ESPN puts on it, and it's just gut-wrenching to see this guy not being able to kind of kick this, and he's talking about it, his life, and there's a part that I love the most in it, and it's that he's finally in the NBA, he goes from one team to another team, and he gets to the, to the, the, Denver, the Denver Nuggets, and the two captains on the Denver Nuggets were Nick Van Exel and Antonio McDice, and they pulled him aside and said, hey, here's what we do when we win. On this team, when we win, we go out, we get drinks, we celebrate, we have a good time. However, now that you're on this team, we're not doing that anymore. We're not going to the bars, we're not going to the clubs, we're going to get dinner, we're going to get dessert. Because we'd much rather have you in the seat than have that seat be empty. Or we'd much rather have you than, uh, with us instead of in this, your struggles and your failings. We won't do any of this to put you in a position where it's going to harm you because we love you. <laughs> that, that right there is the premise of what Paul is talking about, how we live and love and life with one another. That these preferences that we may have may be good for us to be able to enjoy, but when it comes to the fellowship or community of one another, that we begin to lay those preferences aside to be able to choose the presence of another. And in doing that, that we begin to understand God's kingdom, 
and what God is doing by his Holy Spirit. And primarily what that means is we begin to serve one another instead of serving ourselves. And as disciples of Jesus collectively living in light of that, that we choose faith constantly over sin. And Paul begins to lay that out for us. And so first, it's choosing presence over preference. Chapter 14, verse 13. He says, therefore, which we do this all the time, but we pause and say whenever we say therefore, we have to ask, what is it there for? Okay, we usually do this all the time, so clearly a lot of you guys are new. Whenever we ask what the therefore is therefore, we always ask, what is it there for? Thank you. Thank you. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another um, any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, therefore, connecting to what we just talked about, ultimately that God will be our judge. And so he sums up verses 1 through 12 with sentence, therefore, don't judge each other. Don't judge one another. Don't, Don't judge people over these things. He goes, rather, or instead, decide not to put a stumbling block in the way of somebody else. And a stumbling block is that exactly what it sounds like. It's something that you would place in somebody to have them trip. It'd be the equivalent of, you know, if you want a picture of that, someone running down the street and you've been like, what's this, right? And tripping them. Like he's like, whatever you do, don't do certain things that will actually cause people to stumble or to fall. What he's saying is, there are certain things that God has given you, potentially that are freedoms, that are things that you can enjoy, things that you can relax in, things that you can bring glory to God in. But there's a brother or sister of yours, that same thing that you enjoy could be the very thing that trips them up. And he says, if we're going to live in community, we've got to decide not to judge, but rather to go, what are those things? You cannot know those things unless you know people. And so what Paul is talking about here, the context here, this is a dinner table. This is people eating together. And eating together in this day was far more than, than our day. We, we like to eat with each other, and it's fun, and it's great. But this, this was, like, better than that. Like, when they got together for church picnics, they, they went, like, all the way out, right? And the reason for that is because eating with somebody meant you wanted them in your life. It was a sign to them and to everybody else, I want to be with them. And you see this throughout Scripture. In fact, when you, when you read through the Old Testament and you read through the Psalms and you see things like, you know, my cup runs over, or if you— know it in King James, my cup runneth over. Like that means, that meant that, that you wanted to be with someone for a long time. And so the way that would work is if you show up to somebody's house and they gave you a cup of tea and if they filled it up to the brim, that meant I want you here as long as you could possibly be here. Don't go anywhere. Now the inverse of that is if you showed up and they just kind of put ha- halfway in, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right, right? That people, when they ate with each other, it meant a lot. That they did not want the seat to be empty, that they wanted to be with each other. Now, here's what was happening in their day. They would show up to this, to this potluck or this, this just church anniversary or whatever it may be, and there'd be somebody cooking. And people would provide food, and they would be cooking meat, and there'd be someone going, I don't know if I want that meat. Now, different than the way we may say in our day that we don't want meat. Some of us are vegan, some of us are vegetarians, and so we don't eat meat or whatnot. And, or some of us don't like meat cooked a certain way. Like if I'm at a barbecue and someone's grilling a steak and then they grill the steak for a couple minutes and they put it on my plate, I may say, I love you, bro, but I'm not eating that because I actually like my meat cooked. And I get it. All the steak people go, no, you don't get the flavor. Listen, blood's not a flavor to me, right? <laughs> I don't want to eat anything that looks like it can get up and eat me. So that's, that, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking far more that the way this process worked was there were many gods in this area. People would take an animal, they'd sacrifice this animal to a god. And then the vendors would take that animal now, chop it up, and then sell it. Christians would come, buy that meat, take it to the party, 
with other Christians because they had freedom to eat that meat. Same thing with the wine. They had freedom to drink that wine. But there were some Christians there who were going, because of my conscience, I too follow Jesus, but that meat might have been offered to an idol, and I just, my conscience, I cannot eat that. I, I, I can't. I can't. It reminds me of my old life. It reminds me of what it was like when I worshiped those pagan gods. Or it reminds me growing up and how um, that was a way not to honor God. And, and I know there may be freedom in the gospel, but it's not freedom for me in that gospel. I don't see it. And so either I'm going to have to choose to either um, eat this meat, which I'm not going to do, or not be here. And all Paul is saying is choose to not have the chairs empty over what you put on the table. But be, be willing to take those things off the table that you may be able to engage. And the way you know those things is if both parties begin to communicate with one another. And these, these, so to say, freedoms can go anyway. And Paul's just saying, whatever they are, don't put them in the way to make someone stumble, meaning it actually can injure, harm, taint, sprain somebody's faith in Jesus because of what we do as Christians to other followers of Christ. Well, Paul continues here in verse, in verse 14. He goes, I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Paul goes, when it comes to me, he goes, I eat meat. I'm persuaded. I'm convinced. Nothing is unclean. And, and Paul's not saying that whatever I want to do, as long as I pray about it, God's like, do it. No. He's talking about when it comes to this meat and when it comes to this wine. He goes, but to some people, it's not like that. And we got to understand, that's the same way for us. And I, I think for the most part, people are not really getting in arguments in our church, and we're not causing people to stumble because of what type of meat we're eating or what type of drink or what type of wine we're drinking. Maybe, maybe not. Um, I think it comes into just personal convictions that people have. It, it could be in dating relationships. You'll have a person that comes into the relationship that says, hey, you know, um, it is my particular, against my conscience that, you know, I believe that in this relationship that I'm not going to kiss the person I'm going to marry until I marry that person. And so we're not going to kiss until we get married. Now, the person could pull out of that relationship or they can go, I, I get it. I love you. I believe it's okay for us to kiss. But you read the book. You believed it. You kept, you kissed it goodbye. And so, so I, <laughs> not, so we, we were, well, we are, we, are, we are together on this, right? That happens. Or this could happen in movies that, you know, you may be able to watch a certain movie, maybe a radar movie that somebody else may not be able to watch. I remember the first movie I went to with my wife. I should have probably, or we were dating at the time, I should have probably asked her what type of movie she likes and what type of movie she doesn't like. And so I found out later she doesn't like movies with vulgar language and killing. And so the first movie we went to was The Departed, <laughs> which... I think was the theme of that movie. <laughs> and you walk out of there, and, she, and I'm like, that was crazy. And she goes, I hated it. I didn't like it. I'm like, that's what I'm saying. It was so crazy. I hated that movie. <laughs> Lord, <laughs> right? I probably should have known that. And part of that is the way that we know those things is if you actually talk. Because then you can really willingly choose to go, I'm going to push this to the side because I'd rather be with you. I mean, really, at the end of the day, the departed is nothing compared to really knowing my wife. Really, at the end of the day, having a drink or having anything is nothing compared to really understanding the nature of the other person across the table and loving them. They begin to choose these particular preferences. When Paul goes even further, and he says this, and he goes straight at the heart at Christians, and I love this. And what I love about this, Paul is not saying to those who don't eat me, buck up, eat more meat. No, he doesn't go, you're weak, eat meat. He doesn't. It isn't tell to the people who are meat eaters, he goes, stop eating meat. He goes, forever. He goes, no, 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 think about the other. 
Just, just choose their, present, their, prep, their presence over your preference for this moment, for this season, for this dinner, for this time, for this relationship, for this community to be able to grow and to flourish. Well, then he says this in verse 15. He says, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. If you have a pen, I would underline that. You are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one from whom Christ died. Meaning, by what you do, don't do something to destroy their faith. Meaning, you actually have a part, and they're walking with Jesus. It's called discipleship. And so all it is is asking the question, hey, man, do you mind if I have this? Is, is, this, is this okay if I drink this? Is it okay if we watch this? If not, please let me know. Because it kind of goes both ways. You guys have both been, many of you have been in that situation where you've watched a movie that you thought was amazing, and then you invited other Christian friends along, hey, watch this, this is pretty funny. And then as you're watching that movie and watching them, you're going, this ain't funny, right? <laughs> and then pretty soon you just watch VeggieTales all day long, right? <laughs> like, there, that, that, it goes kind of go both ways. But what Paul gets at when he gets to the heart, he goes, you're not walking in love. Like, that should be just a dagger to someone who's a Christian, <laughs> Because the whole, the whole essence of being a Christian is that we have been loved and therefore we love. And so what Paul is saying, can your love trump your freedom? In fact, he's saying, how about you limit? In order to really experience walking in love, you have to limit certain things. And I got to address this because I know that there's somebody here, there's usually people here who are not following Christ who would say, hey, that's the problem. That's, that's, that's a problem with Christianity. It seems like all it is is limiting and constraints and in order to have love, you got to like, you know, sacrifice things and that just doesn't seem like that should, that's the way it's supposed to be. I mean, because if, if any of us kind of grew up in this culture or even go to college, you realize one of the things we're taught is everybody should be able to choose and do what they want to do. They should be free. That's the essence of freedom, no constraints. That everybody should be able to do what they want to do. But then you answer that question and you go, really? Should everybody be able to do whatever they want to do? I mean, is there, is there not anybody in the world right now that's doing something that we wouldn't say, ah, uh, they shouldn't be doing that? And at some level we go, yeah, there's some things. Well, that means there has to be some greater authority, whether you acknowledge this as the, the ultimate reality in Christ and his word and scripture or not, we understand that. And then constraints and limitations by experience, we know that doesn't limit freedom. That actually gives us more freedom. Think, think about it vocationally and the things that you do. If you've ever read the book Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Outliers, one of the things that um, out, Malcolm Gladwell talks about is the 10,000-hour rule, that the people who become great at what they do, they spend 10,000 hours doing it. And so he takes the Beatles, and he says, what made the Beatles great is they, they played in all these different places over and over and over again, and time after time after time, they became good. You take someone like a good musician like John Coltrane who does jazz, Someone like that has to practice hours and hours and hours and hours again. Take someone who's a good salesman. Take someone who's an entrepreneur. They have to start things and fail again and again and again and again. And, and what they do is they spend hours into these things working on whatever it is they want to be good at or be free in. And so in doing that, they actually limit things. There's other things they could have been doing in those 10,000 hours that they're choosing not to do willfully to enjoy the freedom of what they love. Or you take that romantically. I always get people when they say that, tell me, <laughs> right? You take a romantic when somebody When someone begins to pursue somebody else, man, everything else kind of fades to black for a season. That everything that you want to do, you want to learn about this person. You want to know what it is about this person that makes them tick. You want to know what is it that they, they want to pursue. You want to pursue that thing. You want to get to know that person. And the deeper you fall in love with that person, usually the people around you are going, dude, you're losing it, bro. You're whipped. I know. I know, right? You don't even care. that You're, you're, you're spending all this time with this girl. I know. <laughs> 
And that, you, you willfully choose that, and you push things to the side and say, I'm going to pursue this person the deeper and the deeper and deeper you get with that person. The longer you're with that person, the more that covenant, the more that relationship builds, you realize that part of love is not just limiting, but it's going, how can I, how can I bring you pleasure? What are the things that pleases you? Let me know. You study. You want to find out, and you want to do the most of those things because that actually begins to express and fulfill that love. You know, it's the same thing when it comes to our Christian faith. That when it comes to God, there's not this moral straitjacket. That we actually love him. <laughs> and in loving him and understanding who he is, we limit things willfully because of the relationship. And the deeper and deeper the gospel begins to go deep into our hearts, the more we understand how much God loves us, the more we realize even more and more how much I want to do to please him. That we want to be able to. This is something that we delight to do. It's not something that just becomes a moral restriction. We choose to be do that for love. Now, some people would go, okay, well then, if I am going to have that relationship with the God, that means that I would have to adjust myself because there's no way that this particular God could adjust to me. And many religions do teach that. And oftentimes people see the Bible teaching that. However, that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible teaches us the way that this relationship begins is that our God adjusts to us. That in the incarnation of Christ, God himself leaves comforts and puts on flesh. And then he postures and positions himself in the perfect place to be able to absorb for us the very thing that stood in the relationship with him, and that is to take upon our sin on the cross and to be resurrected and give us his Holy Spirit in which we may know him. And when we begin to understand that love, the gospel that it teaches, that those of us who follow Jesus, we don't see that as a, as a limitation that we don't choose. We choose whatever limitations that go along with that because of his love. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, he says this, For the love of Christ controls us. If you have a different translation, that word actually says compels or constrains, meaning it limits us. Why? Because we have concluded this, that one has died, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. When Paul says this, that we're not walking in love, what he's saying is when you're not walking in love, when you're, not, when you're choosing actually pre, um, preference over presence, you're not being a Christian. <laughs> you're not living to the deepest, truest self of you, your deepest love. You're going outside of your covenant commitments and what God has committed to you. That you're actually choosing something for yourself other than the other. When really the reality of it is if you are in this relationship, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is going deep enough, you willfully, you willfully engage because of the love of God and in doing so, you begin to love the people around you. And so Paul goes at the heart and saying, when you're doing this, when you're eating meat, when you're drinking, when you're doing certain things in a, in a way that doesn't think of the other or excludes the other, and that you would rather have those things in the presence of another follower of Christ, he says, you're not actually living into that love. And so the first point that Paul says is, choose presence, people's presence, over ultimately, your preferences. And that's one of the ways that we begin to live in community. Well, Paul doesn't stop there. He, he goes from talking about the table, ultimately, to the throne. What I mean by that, he goes from talking about what it's like in interpersonal relationships and what it should be like to the throne of Christ, ultimately the kingdom of God, and giving us ulti ultimate uh, perspective on how we live in community. If you pick up with me in verse 17, he says this, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Here, here's what Paul is doing. He says the kingdom of God. I want to address something here. One, 
Many people say that Jesus and the Apostle Paul have two different messages. That some people say, well, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. But Paul talks about justification, justification. Really, Jesus and Paul aren't saying two separate things. We've got to understand context. When Jesus spoke, he spoke to primarily a Jewish audience whose language was already used to um, the language, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. When Paul wrote, and Paul did ministry primarily in the Roman Greco world, not people who were raised with the Old Testament scripture. Therefore, Paul uses the name Lord a lot, which is the same thing, the kingdom of heaven in which God reigns, and Lord, of which he's the Lord of all things. However, when Paul does use the kingdom of God, he uses it to correct behavior that's happening. And so the other time we see it is in Corinthians, and people are uh, being puffed up by the way that they speak and the choice of words. And he says the kingdom of God is not, does not exist in talk, but it exists in power. And then here in Romans, when people are being puffed up by what they're eating and what they're drinking, he goes, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. He goes, at the end of the day, um, um, that's a secondary thing. That's a, that's a freedom. That's a preference. Enjoy it. But at the very heart of why Jesus died and he was raised and why Jesus is coming back and what we ought to be doing and loving one another, it's not about that. He says, but what is it about? He says it's about righteousness. It's about peace. And it's about joy in the Holy Spirit. And so let's break those things down. First, you have righteousness. Righteousness can mean two things. The righteousness that Paul is talking about here. It could be, first, the understanding that we don't have righteousness in ourselves. And we spend time talking about that. Romans chapter 3 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. But the righteousness that we have now is what is called the foreign righteousness or what is called the passive righteousness, something in which we receive by the work of Christ. That means our credit, which was bankrupt of righteousness, now is full. It is, it is unlimited that we can go back to it again and again and again. What I think about this, I think about it, and I know it's kind of juvenile, but I go back to when I was in college and I had this unlimited eating pass. I, I love that thing. And by the end of the semester, you know what happens? You get sick of it. And now I'm like, I wish I had that. I would show up to Manzanita this morning. Can you swipe that a few times? In fact, my whole church is coming. It's unlimited. Can you just keep swiping all day? Yeah, we're going to be eating cereal all day in the name of the Lord. Um, but no meat I offered to idols because we, don't, you know, we want to choose a preference. Anyways, <laughs> there, there, there's, this, there's this reality that when it comes to this righteousness, that we have the unlimited righteousness of Christ applied to our record. And there's nothing we did to pay for that. Somebody else put that in our account in the same way that a parent usually puts that money into the account of a student. Um, the second part of that righteousness is now, in response to that, that the people who've received that begin to live as righteous people. They begin to pursue holiness. They begin to desire obedience. They begin to desire to look like in their conduct and their words, Jesus. Second word is peace. And peace has two elements as well. Um, peace could deal with the, the peace that we have with God, that we were once enemies of the cross, and that Christ himself humbled himself and becoming a servant, and to even having death on the cross in which we who were enemies are now become friends, that we who were orphans, as, God, as Romans has already, sa already said, that we become children of God, that we have peace with God, we belong in the family of God. And the second part of that peace, as you can probably assume, is that vertical peace and receiving that by God's grace, that in God's grace now, we begin to pursue peace to those around us. And so when you take those things together, what many commentaries say is what Paul is talking about is not the kingdom of God that will come fully, but the work of the Spirit in our lives now, that when we're pursuing righteousness, or another word is justice, that we begin to, in response to the life and love of Christ in our life, that we look at the world around us, we look at within our own hearts, we look at the community around us, and we say, were our things not the way they're supposed to be? And we begin to pursue those things to bring peace. And in bringing peace and living in response to the gospel, that there's joy. And all of this is done by the work of the Holy Spirit. 
So it's not just individual that I pursue holiness and justice and righteousness, but it's even corporately in all that I do in response to the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, it's not about eating or drinking. It's about understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. That you are with people enjoying their presence over your preferences. But not only that, but you are enjoying the kingdom. And the way that that shows itself, the way that the kingdom is lived out and expressed, is actually choosing service over self. You go, how do you know that? Well, look with me in verse 18. It says, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. And not that we do these things to be accepted by God or approved by men. He's just saying, this is the reality of people who serve Christ. And then you go, well, how do I serve Christ? Well, I don't know Christ. I can't see Christ. I can't grab him. We've said this before. The way that you love God and love your neighbor, God says, love God, love your neighbor. The way that you actually love God is through serving your neighbor. The way that you serve Christ is by tangibly putting your hands on another in prayer. By tangibly meeting the needs of other and clothing them and feeding them and caring for them. By tangibly meeting the needs of speaking encouragement into their life and sharing them about Jesus. That you constantly choose service over self every time. And you're beginning to not live into the kingdom. And the spirit of Christ is beginning to invade into the people of Christ and to the places in which they inhabit. Okay, what does this look like? Well, first, when we think about the kingdom, we always have to go back to the king. And that is Jesus. Because when you look at Jesus' life, Jesus embodied this sort of service. In fact, Jesus himself in the gospel of Mark, which probably more than any other gospel, proclaims the kingdom. And he says this in Mark chapter 10, that the king, he says, the son of man, he didn't come in this world to be served, but he says, I actually came to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Meaning the essence of the kingdom is serving and being servants and begin to care about those who are around you. And Tyler Johnson, who's a lead pastor of our redemption, says this, better than anybody, and I believe he's dead on spot. He goes, when we talk about the kingdom a lot, we talk about when God brings his kingdom in, I'm going to enjoy food better. I'm going to enjoy my friends better. I'm going to have a healthy body. He goes, all true, but what if the kingdom wasn't about how much capacity you have to have better pleasures, but how much more capacity you had to serve? Because if the kingdom is about the king, and if the king himself was about serving, and he was a model and a redeemer of what our life would look like, that means the best thing that we could be doing now and choosing pref- uh, pre- presence over presence, you, you know what I'm talking about, and choosing presence over preference is that we'd be able to also choose service over self. That the best way we can live into that is actually by loving and serving people and caring for them. And so um, this is how you're actually great in God's community. Hear me, this is, this, is the, this is a thing that churches ought to be known for. Not good teaching, um, not good singing, not get music, not cool things. All those things are good. But primarily, the kingdom of God is not about those things. It's about living. It's caring for the people next to you. And you can't care for the people next to you until you know the people next to you. And then the way you get to know them, you begin to understand their needs. And here's what Jesus said. He says, this is how the world, talking about people that don't yet know him, he goes, here's how the world will know me. Like the best apologetic to the gospel, he says, is by you actually loving people who are in your church. <laughs> like the best apologetic to the gospel it's not intellectual arguments. He says, not, not just bold preaching. He goes, actually love the person and serve the person next to you and watch how people look at that. You ever read the studies of how people are just lonely? The more dense a city is, the more lonely people are, people are. So I looked it up. The densest place in all of Arizona, all of Arizona, is Rio Salado in the north to southern in the south, Price all the way to Priest. We're in the corner so we're lonely, but we have a couple friends, right? It's Tempe, and it's North Tempe. And what people really want is to be welcomed. 
what Paul is talking about here when you choose presence over your preference, you're welcoming people. What Paul is talking about here in the kingdom of God, the spirit working in your life, not just for you can read your Bible better, so that you can actually read and do what the Bible teaches you to do. That you actually begin to love and serve people more than just yourself. And this becomes, this is, this is how you're great. How did Jesus do it? Jesus says, here's what I want to do. You want to be great in my kingdom? You want to lead in my kingdom? Here's what he says. You have to wash feet. And what does he do? He brings his disciples in and, he's, and, he, and, he, and he sits down and he washes their feet. I can't think of a more humbling thing to do is to wash the feet of some grown men. Right? Yeah. Dang, you must love Jesus. And he said that, 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 that's something that happens metaphorically, that we begin to care for people. And Martin Luther King Jr. said this in coming up, talking about God's kingdom and serving. He says, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. If you have been loved by Jesus, he's died for you, was raised for you, it's easy for, he says, it's a lot easier for you to be with people and to be able to serve people. One of, the, one of the ways this is happening in our congregation that I've just been watching from afar and loving is, and I've shared this before, but this with ministry. With ministry is something that's just started in the last couple months. And it's a collective in which people from our congregation cook food, bring food, and eat food with homeless people in our, in our community. There's a little kitchen in the back of the, um, an area to eat in the back of this um, of our, of our campus here, and I was in there the other day, and it's, it's, it's just an evidence of God's grace in our church, an evidence of God's grace through this city. It's watching many of these people who are transient, many of these people who no one's hearing their story, no one's listening to their story, definitely no one's eating with them. And I can't think of a, a better picture of saying, you know what, you know what I could be doing on a Thursday? At, from five to eight, I could be out, I could be at happy hour, but instead I'm going to be with you. I want to hear your story. You know what I could be doing? I could be doing a bunch of other things. I could just give money to this ministry, but people are not just giving money, but they're giving their time. And this is not something I think is just good for the homeless people in our community. This is good for us, for our people to understand this is tangible evidence of the breaking in and the leaking in of God's, of God's kingdom, of being able to say, I want to be with people, and I'm going to serve people over serving myself. And this, this is the display that Paul says this. He goes, when you're doing this, this is something that brings the type of peace that God is talking about. This brings a sort of Christian community. If you can just imagine for just a moment, if we begin to live this ethic, that we chose presence over our preferences, meaning we just wanted to be with people, and if we begin to choose service over ourselves, if we, if we just, just imagine what this would look like. One, what it would look like in your own relationships, your relationship with your girlfriends, relationship with your, with your um, hopefully you have one girlfriend if you have a girlfriend, um, the, the, the relationship with your friends, the relationship with your spouse, the relationship with your coworkers. When you go to work, that you begin to think about whatever industry you're going to go into tomorrow and whatever product or whatever service that you're providing that you're thinking about, what is my particular role to help serve people in this? And not only that, the interpersonal relationships, the people whom you work with, that person who you know, man, I really don't want to see them today, them, right? How can I serve them? How can I bless them? How could I care for them? Because if this is what the kingdom of God looks like, I'm going to find my greatest joy not in receiving but in giving. That's the paradox of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is always doing that. He's going, you want to lose your life? Okay, try to gain it. But if you, want to, if you want to gain your life, go ahead and lose it for the sake of the kingdom. Like the way up is always the way down. He goes, you want to receive more? Then give more. What if, what if that looked like? What if it looked like actually if we begin to serve one another? You'd have lonely people who enter into these walls, lonely people who enter into your social networks of friends that begin to go, you know what? There's something about you Christians. I, can't, I, can't, I cannot put my finger on it. 
There's a guy I'm meeting with now that goes, has been going to this church for weeks. By his own words would say he's not a follower of Christ. And I say, why do you keep coming back? And we meet probably every other week. He goes, there's something about when I come and see you guys and worship or anything to do with the There's something about it. He can't even put his hand on it. Hopefully that's that we love each other, that we serve each other. And if that begins to leak out into our community, we'll actually begin to be the church and the people who God's called us to be and that he will begin to draw people to himself. Because let me just tell you something. Our goal is not to grow numerically by church transfer. So people who say, I left this church to come to this church. Now that happens, I understand it, it, it's, it's gonna happen, but our growth is, our, 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 our prayer is to go that we as people, as a church, that we begin to live our lives in such a way that we resemble this community, this love, that people would de- desire to be here. Because the reality is, some people have to belong before they ever believe. And belonging to us and our friendship and our love, we begin to teach the gospel in what we say and what we do. And Paul says, live this out and you'll be living the kingdom of God. And you'll be being the people who God's called us to be. And so one, we do that by choosing presence, presence, people, people over the things that we prefer. We do it by constantly looking ways to serve. How can I serve immediately? How can I serve tomorrow? Who can I serve? And lastly, the way we walk in this discipleship relationship collectively is we choose faith over sin. Paul concludes his part in verse 20. He says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So he repeats what he said. He goes, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Now here's what Paul's not saying. Paul's not saying, um, the faith that you have in Jesus, shh, don't tell anybody, right? Don't, whatever you do, keep it a secret. No, he's talking about your, whatever, whatever it comes to the way that you eat or the way that you drink or whatever it is that you do. He says, keep it between yourself. Don't cause somebody else to stumble. And I had to deal with this too, here too. There are some of you who are, who, who are hearing this are going, what I'm hearing you say is, Christians shouldn't drink, and I agree with you. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, I didn't say that. Uh, some Christians shouldn't drink. Some Christians will drink. What I'm saying is that a Christian should say to his Christian brother or sister, are you okay if I have this, this drink? You know, or do you, are you okay if I have this bottle of wine? Are you okay if I have this malt liquor? Uh, which I know you don't drink that, but anyways. <laughs> are, you, <laughs> are you okay if I have this? Is, is it fine with you? That's what I'm saying. Because the other side of that is, um, those of you who are like, yeah, 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 tell them to stop drinking. No, 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 it's not, because God didn't say that. Here, here's what I want to deal with, just, just briefly here, is those of you who would say, I feel like when I see a Christian or a Christian leader or anyone who's a mature Christian engaging in something like, say, alcohol, it makes me stumble. Does it make you stumble or does it make you judge? Does it make you stumble? Does it make you want to get drunk? If it does, okay, that's on the Christian. But if it makes you go, how dare they? That's on you. And that's on your own heart. That's the difference. What Paul is saying is here is when it comes to this faith, keep it between you and God. He doesn't mean don't, don't share it to people. He's saying don't flaunt it. Don't say, look what I can do and what you can't do. Look, look, look what I can engage in but you can't engage in. I've shared my story with you. Last week, I, I went through a period where I I drank a lot before I became a Christian. And then I became a Christian, and I said, I don't, I'm not going to drink anymore for a season. That was, that was my particular deal because and for, for the moment that I was in, it just, it, I wanted to prove to myself that I could not do that. I could not drink. But that's not where I'm at now. And that's not trying to give you my convictions. That's not where I'm at right now. Now, I'm not praying to tank anymore, but I'm just saying there's a reality of like, I, there's a wisdom that pursues this thing. But it, it, it's a faith in which does not need to be flaunted to people. And Paul is saying, here's what you do. If you're in doubt, just forgo. Take it away. And, and then he, 
then he finishes with this, and he says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God, is blessed the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. He's saying, choose faith over sin. Meaning those of you who are going, I can't kiss before I get married. I can't watch this radar movie. I can't engage in this particular. Don't do it. But my Christian friends are doing it. Don't do it. You should, because if you do it and you sin against, if you go against your conscience, Paul's saying, you're condemned already. That, that means there are certain things for some Christians that, that are not sin. And those same things for other Christians are sin. And I know that seems confusing, but it's the reality. And I love that God gives us the wisdom to be able to decide. And you'll know it. You'll know it. Because you go, man, something's, this doesn't sit well with me. I Don't do it. Faith is saying, I have confidence in who God is, what God is doing to be able to say yes to this or say no to this. Sin is, I don't think I should be doing it, but my homies are doing it, so I'm going to do it. That's a problem. That's human approval. That's not walking in discipleship. Um, and so as a community, we need to be sensitive to each other. But when it comes to your conscience, don't sin against it. So what does this look like? For me, personally, it usually comes up oftentimes when it comes to premarital counseling. A lot of people in our congregation get married. People say, Ricardo, uh, we, I want you to, to, do our, to do our, they don't, they don't do that. I do that. They, uh, I want you to, I want, they're usually like, right, we just got engaged, right? I want you to be able to do our premarital. And whenever I sit down, the first thing I do is even hear your story. And then I, I used to ask this question. Four or five years ago, I used to say, tell me your stories. Now what I say is, where do you live? So now you guys know. Because what I'm looking for is, we live, all right, all right, you're living with each other. All right, gotcha, right? And so we, we go from there. Now, what I usually say is, my conscience says this. When it comes to someone who does not follow Christ by their own words, and somebody else who does not follow Christ by their own words, and they want to be married, I have no problem marrying them before the Lord. They want to honor God, or excuse me, they want, to, they want to honor something that God ordains, marriage, and I think it's right. I'll do it. I always say, hey, let's meet four times. I can share the gospel with you. I'll do it. If it comes to someone who says, I love Jesus, and they're wanting me to marry them and their, their, particular, their potential spouse who does not love Jesus, I have, I have, my conscience is no. And the reason why I tell them that is that I feel like I'm setting you up for something bad, and I can't, I cannot be, there's no way I can get up before God and before you and say, yes, I can't do it. That's my own conscience. I can't get there. Um, another one is people living with each other. Is it a sin in the Bible to live in the same house with someone who you're attracted to? No, it's not a sin. Is it a sin to gauge in sexual relationships? Absolutely. So the Bible does say don't even give the hint of sin. And then when couples go, well, we're living in the same house together, but we're not doing anything. I said, that's a problem. You should want to do something with someone that you want to get married to. So no, right? And so that's, if you can get married, <laughs> so... I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm about to blitz in just a second. <laughs> so, so, what I, so we work through that. And that, those are, again, those are, those are, those are my, those are, that's a conscience. If I did that, I, knew, I know that right, for right now, the way the Lord is speaking, you have yours. And you have yours with certain things. And you have to live in those. It starts first with understanding the life and love that we have for God. Because what Paul is talking, like calling us to, the life that he's calling to is, all, is always the gospel. Because everything that Paul calls us to, everything the Bible calls us to, is something that we already have fulfilled for us in Jesus. Not just an example so that we can try to mimic it, but fulfilled for us. Uh, right? Remember what Paul says to the Corinthians? He goes, don't you know the grace of God? Don't you know the grace of God? He says that he who was rich became poor, meaning he's the one who actually li- limited himself. 
He's the one who willfully left comfort. He's the one who left the ultimate community, the ultimate friendship, the ultimate relationship for all eternity with the Father and the Spirit. He suspended that for a moment. Don't you know he was rich but he became poor? Why? So that you who were poor spiritually now might become rich in him? That you may actually have the mind of Christ and the life of Christ in you? And then what does Paul say? Now live your life from that. And so when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it comes to how we live out this, it's easy for us to choose presence over preference. Because God chose us and to be with us because he wanted to bring us up with him. And so Jesus was willing to leave heaven for us. It's easy for us to choose service over self. Because now being a Christian, we realize as Jesus didn't come to be served, and as followers of Christ, we have his life in us, then we've come to serve people and to love people. And lastly, it's easier for us to choose faith over sin. Because it's by faith that we walk, not in sin. It's by faith that we are freed, not in sin. It's by faith that we understand the relationship with Jesus, not in sin. And so everything that Paul is calling us to, what he's doing like he does every week, he's saying, follow Jesus, remember Jesus. Discipleship at its essence is remembering the selfless, sacrificial life of Jesus afresh and then turning and reciprocating that same love in the most tangible ways as you possibly can to those around you, led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray.